from Nevada Public Radio. I'm Joe Shaneman, and we are back with State of Nevada. You know, we cook with it, bathe in it, or keep our plants alive with it, but fresh water is a scarce resource. UNICEF says half the world could be facing water scarcities by 2025, and many of those places aren't like Las Vegas, where it's very hot and the air is very dry year-round. So here, careful management of the water is crucial. And now, a key legal decision by Nevada Supreme Court could help to better manage and conserve our groundwater. Rhiannon Sagert, environmental reporter for the Las Vegas Sun, reported on the decision last week. Also with us is Patrick Donnelly of the Center for Biological Diversity. And Rhiannon, I'm going to start with you. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. And I want to say this is a complicated decision. It's related to what was conceived three decades ago as this massive development in our northwest of Las Vegas called Coyote Springs. Developers envisioned 150,000 homes, 10 golf courses, casinos, and it's been held up in court for various reasons over the years. You reported on a January decision by the Nevada Supreme Court that could affect this development. First, can you explain what the court decided? What did they say? Okay. So the state Supreme Court decided that the state engineer has the authority to manage water basins that are interconnected as a single resource. And that doesn't just go for underground water basin. That, that also goes for surface water like, uh, say, a spring-fed river. Uh, those can be managed as one source. Well, how is that different than what it, what has been uh, the, the way? Well, so far, um, you know, there are basins that all have their own lists of water rights holders, mm-hmm. and this allows the state engineer to, if he finds that those sources are actually interconnected, that one person pulling water out affects another basin, they're actually one source. So those lists might get combined. The state engineer can, in effect, change the priority. Okay. So, so I mean, see, am, I, am I seeing this right? Let's say there's a thousand gallons of water. One person has a right to, uh, you know, 500 gallons. So they want to suck 500 gallons out. That's their right. But now the state uh, engineer can say, well, you can't just suck 500 gallons out if it's going to affect the rights uh, of those who hold the, the other parts of that 1,000 gallons of water. Yes. Part of the decision is combining these six basins into something now called the Lower White River Flow System, and that has less than 50,000 acre-feet of water in it total, he found. Okay. So so there is so much uh, interesting uh, parts of this case that you wrote about. The state engineer's office, for instance, in 2002 and 2020, they did different things with the hydro- hydrographics of the area. They pumped water um, to see if that the, the amount of water being pumped out could affect the water table throughout a certain area within 1,000 miles. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So state engineer halted all of the applications for that area, including the Coyote Springs applications, Uh, and ordered this pump test is what it was called. And that required uh, rights holders to pump at least half of their allotments for their annual allotments for two years to see what it did to the surrounding basins and whatnot. They did that test in 2010 and to 2012. And they found that it affected everything within 1,100 square miles. It was actually much worse than they thought. Okay. At that point, wasn't that enough to stop this development? I mean, that was more than like 10 years ago when they did these tests. Why Do you, do you understand why it's taken this long for it to actually come to a decision? 
I know that it was in district court for a while. I know that in 2019, there were uh, long hearings where everybody involved, all the stakeholders brought um, hydrologists and lawyers to Carson City and presented their own hydrological models, uh, made their own arguments. Okay. You know, I want to bring in Patrick Donnelly now. He is with the Center for Biological Diversity. Patrick, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you. Patrick, are you there? Yeah, it's great to be with you, Joe. Great great to have you, too. You know, uh, Patrick, this case has been in court for decades. One interesting part, and I was talking to Rhiannon about this for a little bit, for at least two years, the state did this test, and it drew 8,000 acre-feet of water per year from an area to see how it might impact the environment for within 1,000 miles. For for listeners who might not know, an acre-foot is about enough to supply two homes with water for a year. So that 8,000 acre-feet involved this test. It was a fraction of what would have been needed to supply the 150,000 homes in that area. Talk a little bit more about what research researchers found when they did that test. Yeah, well, this lower White River flow system, this aquifer system, is all interconnected. And so the theory was that pumping in one location, i.e., you know, for Coyote Springs, would affect groundwater levels all across the basin. And uh, indeed it did. Uh, Groundwater monitoring stations went down, wells went down all across the six basins, and most notably, uh, the springs at the head of the Muddy River uh, declined. And that is of critical importance here, and it's the reason my organization has been suing Coyote Springs for 20 years, because there's an endangered fish in the Muddy River called the Moapa Dace that is listed under the Endangered Species Act. And so Coyote Springs pumping and the pump test, you know, reduced spring flows for this endangered, thus ostensibly reduced its numbers as well. And so that is really the source of our concern and and why we're involved in this. But, you know, with regard to the aquifer, our hydrologist likened it to a pond. He basically said this aquifer across the six basins is like a pond. And if you draw it down in one place, the whole thing draws down. So that seems, uh, you know, to me, that seems like common sense. Why hadn't it been that way in Nevada until now? Um, You know, there's a lot of historical reasons for that. Nevada water law seems like a coherent body of of work today, but it actually came about in bits and pieces based on old traditions, um, uh, elements that came from before we even had water law. It was kind of assembled together with duct tape and bailing wire. And so in the 60s, the state engineer designated hydrographic basins across the state, 256 of them. Um, But that was before we really knew the science about these underground aquifers, about the interconnectivity of surface and groundwater. Those basins were largely topographic basins, you know, based on mountain ranges and not based on this kind of emerging science that has happened in the past 60 years uh, that we know so much more about groundwater and how it flows across the landscape uh, than we did back then. uh, People back then, as you say, they didn't realize that there could be uh, connections between this groundwater for for miles and miles or hundreds of miles they they separate it like uh, along borders yeah essentially like on mountain divides whereas it turns out that these deep carbonate aquifers flow underneath mountain ranges uh, nevada has this fascinating hydrology and that's why hydrologists from all over the world come here to study it um uh where where water behaves very paradoxically and moves across vast 
distances. Um, and so, you know, it was really only with more modern scientific techniques that some of those relationships were really fully understood. You know, th- this case, Patrick, and the related water pipeline from northeastern Nevada to Las Vegas has been written about for decades. It began in the 1990s when powerful lobbyist Harvey Whittemore bought 40,000 acres in Coyote Springs for about $20 million dollars. Other developers came in, they bought more. Whittemore's plan, again, involved tens of thousands of homes, casinos, 10 golf courses. But there have been reports as far back as the 1960s where hydrologists knew there was barely enough water there to support the meager amount of people, livestock, and natural plant and animal life that had already been there. So how did this ever come about in the first place? How did Whittemore ever think this would work? Uh, you know, water flows uphill to money, as they say. And, uh, you know, you had some extremely powerful players uh, acting on behalf of, of Mr. Whittemore, um, probably in all eight levels of government. I mean, it was long before my time, but it was certainly a politically in favor for many years. And I think that's been a big sea change. You know, there was an ownership change, obviously. The Sinos now own it. And, you know, Clark County has moved on. The powers that be in Clark County have terminated the pipeline and they are no longer in support of coyote springs being built out in the middle of nowhere because i think they recognize it's an incredibly flawed idea and so you know coyote springs has become politically unfashionable and and with that you know these kind of it's also run up against the hard limits of the law you know the law says they cannot do this and we've all known that for a long time and now the supreme court has affirmed that now keep it in mind that the scarcity of water in the Coyote Springs area has been known for many, many decades. I want to mention that back in the 1990s, the Southern Nevada Water Authority did pay Harvey Whittemore some $25 million for the water rights in, for, for water rights in Coyote Springs. But why? Since it had been known that there was little water there to begin with. So why did they take public dollars and spend $25 million for water that really wasn't that that uh, plentiful. Well, I can't speak to their motivations at that time uh, since it was before my time, but I will say the Southern Nevada Water Authority, they were our co-plaintiffs in this case at the Supreme Court. We were working together, believe it or not, after years of opposition, um, because they own water rights on the Muddy River. Uh, the discharge of the Muddy River when it makes it to the bottom at Lake Mead uh, is Southern Nevada Water Authority's water. They store it in Lake Mead as an intentionally created surplus, an ICS credit. Um, and that water is your drinking water there in Las Vegas that is uh, stored in Lake Mead. And so they have a very vested interest in preventing over-pumping of groundwater in the lower White River flow system because that will decrease flows on the Muddy River and thereby decrease uh, available drinking water for Las Vegas. So, you know, we have actually had a very strong partnership um, as we were co-respondents in this litigation at the Supreme Court. So what do you think the Supreme Court ruling does to Coyote Springs, that planned community, and uh, do you think it kills it? Well, there's another round of uh, court intrigue to come. Uh, The Supreme Court remanded uh, the case back to the district court. You know, first, Judge Yeager at the district court was going to decide whether the order in question was legal. And she said it wasn't, which is why we went to the Supreme Court. But now we have to go back to the district court. And it's not a question of whether the order was legal. It's whether it was based on substantial evidence. And so the, the judge will look at the record and determine whether the state engineer had enough 
scientific evidence to make these decisions. And, you know, we think the, uh, the evidence is abundantly clear and essentially all the hydrologists agreed, except for the ones working for Coyote Springs and their allies. So, uh, you know, we feel pretty confident about getting through the substantial evidence test at district court and again at the Supreme Court if we have to. But I would say Coyote Springs is, you know, knocked out on the floor, but they're not done yet. And we have another, you know, we have another round to go in court. Yeah, Rihanna, and you wanted to add something to this. Yes, I mean, no, you, no, you oh, okay. Um, so, well, um, you know, when this uh, when this goes back to the lower court, do you think it's going to be several years, Patrick, before this is decided again, or do you think this this next decision could just end it all forever in terms of this uh, large development idea? You know, uh, I can't say forever, forever. Um, certainly, if they lose at district court, one would assume they would appeal back to the Supreme Court again because their attorneys are certainly earning their uh, hourly rate. Um, uh, so we may go back to the Supreme Court. So, you know, it could be another couple of years. But, you know, I would say their, their prospects, if this holds up under scrutiny, are very, very grim. I mean, they don't have any water. Where's the water going to come from? And, uh, uh, you know, the, the water is spoken for by endangered species and the Southern Nevada Water Authority. So, uh, you know, I think their prospects get extremely dim uh, if, if they lose this next round in court. How do you think the court's ruling will impact the regulation of groundwater pumping from here on in? I mean, does this mean a huge change here? You know, it really does. I mean, like like I said, there's still another round to go with Coyote Springs, but the precedent of this Supreme Court ruling is just massively on Nevada water law. Unfortunately, every action the state engineer takes from here on out is going to be influenced by this precedent because almost all state has some part of its life cycle as groundwater. And so the interrelated nature of groundwater and surface water and, and how it relates across basins just affects almost every water issue the state engineer deals with. So, you know, for, for our part, we envision wildlife activists using this ruling 50 years from now to defend wildlife. But I think it affects everybody who has water. The mining industry will find beneficial aspects from this, uh, this precedent. Um, you know, agriculture will find beneficial aspects. It just depends on the situation and the basins you're in. But this is extremely complex consequential for Nevada water law. Now, you know water decisions based on its impact on the environment, uh, different species, but I wonder if there are other decisions that you think need to be made regarding groundwater and the pumping in the state, or is, or is this the biggest thing? Was this the biggest hindrance to the conservation of water and, I guess, the fair and adequate pumping of water in the state, or, or is there more to be decided? You know, I think this was the elephant in the room for the whole seven years I've been working on Nevada water law and decades before, I think, elephant in the room. So, you know, it, it's certainly uh, really significant. There are always going to be other issues we need to resolve with Nevada water law. Many things are outstanding, but I think much of the rancor we've seen, especially in the past four legislative sessions, have really revolved around some of these questions. And now the Supreme Court has settled those questions. So I think the biggest question moving forward with this precedent is how will it be applied? Where will we apply it to defend wildlife, to defend senior water rights? There are so many potential applications across the state. So, uh, you know, the, I've, I've been saying the world is our oyster uh, with the Supreme Court ruling because there's a lot of wildlife that needs water in the state that, that we need to go out there and defend. 
And Rhiannon Sagert, uh, Las Vegas Sun. You interviewed the Coyote Springs attorney, Kent Robeson. What was his argument in favor of maintaining water rights? Um, He said that he wasn't arguing against the hydrologic models necessarily. He said that uh, with this decision, uh, the way that water rights are managed in Nevada, you know, first in time, first in right, the oldest rights have the priority. I mean, it's just completely thrown out the window. Um, and now nobody knows how it's going to be managed going forward. And it's not completely thrown out the window, I should say. It's more like, you know, those lists of rights holders now have to be combined. Uh, You have to decide who gets priority Mm -hmm. on a bigger scale. So it changes everything. Uh, First in time, first in right is no longer as rock solid, I guess you could say. Uh, Patrick Donnelly, how do you see this? Uh, How will they, for instance, prioritize who gets access to water from here on in? Do, Do you understand that aspect of this? Well, there are still proceedings to happen. So uh, according to the state engineer, this order that he went through, which resulted in this litigation, was a scientific inquiry to look at the basin boundaries and the maximum amount that could be sustainably pumped from those basins. There will be a second proceeding uh, once the court, the dust settles, the second proceeding will then decide how to allocate water under that cap. And so um, there is still a, a sticky wicket ahead of us um, uh, once the state engineer moves into phase two of this process. But I think that's part of what we were argue about, arguing about in court, that we were saying this is a scientific inquiry that is meant to guide policy, whereas Coyote Springs has been saying this is a takings. This is the state engineer taking our water rights away, um, which the, the court found was not the case. Yeah, Patrick, earlier you said the world is our oyster. Once you start combining these basins, I wonder where you draw the line. Don't we need to prioritize water maybe for urban users? You know, in almost no cases uh, in the state are existing groundwater supplies, um, uh, you know, in conflict with wildlife also being used by urban users. Um, Our two major urban centers, you know, are served by large river systems. Um, and so while this could have some applicability there, uh, that's not generally the concern that my organization has. Um, I think certainly we're in a time where we need to look at the fact that most water in the state goes to growing very low value crops, in particular alfalfa. Uh, and a lot of it also goes. So I agree. There's going to come a time when we need to really prioritize water for people um, as well as wildlife. And so I think we are going to have to look at those large consumers of water in the state and decide whether that's the best use uh, of our water resources. And Rhiannon, you wanted to add to this. Yes. um, Part of the reason the Southern Nevada Water Authority got involved is because of those muddy river water rights. Those are the most senior rights in the entire combined system and some of the oldest in Nevada. So those are uh, those won't be affected by federal shortages or anything else like that. That's part of the reason they want to hold on to them. Okay. One, one more thing. You know, Patrick, on this program, we talk a lot about the Southern Nevada Water Authority and their dealings with the six other states that share Colorado River water. Is there any relationship between this ruling and the laws of the Colorado River? You know, to some degree, I think what ruling does is really positions Nevada as somewhat of a leader across the West uh, for dealing with some of these intractable issues regarding prior appropriation and regarding conjunctive management. Um, 
that's going to have trickle-down effects across water policy. So I'm not sure this ruling directly affects the river because so little Nevada is actually in the Colorado shed. Um, but I think Nevada advancing toward a more 21st century progressive approach to managing water is going to have ripple effects across the West. Uh, do you th- I want to also wonder this. Because of this ruling, do you think any uh, major development will ever be able to happen in these much more rural uh, areas within the basin, like Coyote Springs, or, or because of the things that they found by doing some of the, the pumping and the testing, does it pretty much rule out large developments in those areas? Yeah, I would say there's never going to be a city of a quarter million people in Coyote Springs Valley, period, or anywhere in the lower White River flow system. It's just there's no water for it. So I think, yes, the answer is if they lose the next round, I think it's over for a large-scale development in the lower White River flow system. I don't think it means there's no development anywhere in the state, you know, especially north, you know, in the northern part of the state, there's much more water to go around. You know, there's still stressed groundwater resources up there, but compared to the Mojave Desert portions of the state where there is, we are in critical overdraft. Um, You know, there is still more water to be appropriated in the northern part of the state. So I I wouldn't look at it as a statewide implication that there won't be any development, but I think at the lower White River flow system, you know, the the natural limits have been reached and and there won't be a large city out there um, if if this court, the second court proceeding goes the way we think it will. Patrick, you also had said this in the story that Rhiannon wrote that um, you said this is going to lead to water regulations based on priority to the most senior water rights holders until the maximum sustainable pumping yield is reached. How will that maximum be determined? This sounds like testing that could take many years. Right. Well, that was part of the the pump testing that um, that they went through in developing this order that you described earlier. Um, you know, the the maximum sustained pumping level was determined through the data that was collected through that process and the evidentiary hearings that Rihanna mentioned that we had in 2019. I think the upshot to that is it's an incredible amount of work and money uh, to the data. And so, you know, there's 256 basins in the state. It's unlikely the state engineer has the funding to go, you know, do those tests across the whole state. Um, and I think the, the work of bringing these basins into balance is going to be painstaking and very expensive and take a long time. Rhiannon Sager? The pump test that they conducted here actually damaged uh, some of the areas in a way that was more permanent than they expected. Even though it was a very minimal amount. Yes. I mean... It impacted the Warm Springs area, especially those springs. I know that if they conduct these tests somewhere else, they're going to have to be pretty careful. And Patrick, does this, the result of this decision, does this save the the Moapa Dace? Uh, It's certainly uh, a shot in the arm for its conservation prospects. Um, The Southern Nevada Water Authority and state and federal wildlife agencies have put a lot of time into the conservation of this species, Um, but the species will not persist without water. So this is a major shot in the arm. I think there is already pumping happening in the lower White River flow system that is affecting the springs there. There is a downward trend long term. Um, And so, uh, you know, there is going to be further discussion about the hydrology of the lower river flow system and about that sustainable pumping amount. You know, we actually sued because we said it was too high at the district court level. Now, we didn't pursue those claims at the Supreme Court, um, but but our argument was 8,000 was too much. And actually, the Southern Nevada Water Authority agreed with that. Uh, so I think there's still 
still more intrigue to be had about how much water is coming out of the ground in these basins and, and thus the conservation of the Moapidase. Rhiannon Sager, what is next? I mean, did the attorneys for this development and the various developers in the Coyote Springs area, did they say they're definitely going to appeal or do they want to go forward when it goes into district court, when it's taken back down to the lower courts? Um, I spoke to Kent Robeson. I also spoke to Emily Amelia Cargill with Wingfield Nevada Group, who owns the Coyote Springs development. Uh, she said they're still looking for a way forward. Robeson said that um, based on what happens at district court, either um, the developers or the appellants will have to uh, will probably have to appeal it. Okay. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but we will undoubtedly be talking more about it going forward. I really want to thank Rhiannon Sager, environmental reporter for the Las Vegas Sun, and Patrick Donnelly of the Center for Biological Diversity in the Great Basin.